John chapter 1, please, as we begin a new series on a book that has to be the greatest testimony to the person of Jesus of Nazareth that you could find. The Gospel of John is very unique. It is not like the other three Gospels in view of the fact that 93% of the material that's in the Gospel of John does not appear in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. From about chapter 11 to the end, it also deals with just one week in the life of our Lord, and in that sense, it's very unusual. And also, it's unusual in the sense that the author, John himself, who I believe was a cousin of Jesus Christ, and you have the evidence for that presented on your general outline notes, but John knew more about Jesus Christ than anyone else, and he was the only one of the apostles who did not die as a martyr, but died a natural death as an old man and lived through the entire first century. John took care of Jesus' mother. John was on the inner circle of three disciples who were often with Jesus at precious moments. John was the disciple who leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. John knew more about Jesus intimately than any of the other disciples. And so John, the Gospel of John, becomes a very important book to Christians. The theme of the book is the deity of Jesus Christ, or if you like my subtitle, which is not written, I call it to Jehovah Witnesses with Love. <laughs> if you'll turn, please, to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, you will see the purpose of the book, which we have stated for you on your notes. By the way, the general outline notes will not be given to you again, so be sure to keep those handy somewhere. In the chapter 20 of, of the Gospel and in verse 30 and 31, we read these words, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, if you think that all that Jesus did, all the people he healed, all the things that he said are recorded in the Scripture, that is not true. Just flip over to chapter 21 and the last verse to expand on that. John says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So there's much on Jesus that we don't have recorded. Back to verse 31 of chapter 20, but these are written, these signs that are in the Gospel of John are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So a twofold purpose of the book. First, that we might believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. He's the Messiah and the Son of God. And secondly, that by believing in this, we would experience eternal life through his name. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any, any other name, but that name of Jesus, that's where you'll find salvation. And we learn something about the significance of his name and his person in the Gospel of John. You'll notice a general outline. We're going to follow this pattern, which is a familiar pattern to students of the Gospel of John, and that is that his public ministry goes through about the first 12 chapters. In the first four chapters, you'll find a record of his public manifestation declaring who he is. And then beginning with chapter 5, you'll notice a growing reaction to his ministry. Unbelief is developing, reaction against him. And then in, verses, in chapters 13 through chapter 17, we're going to look at the private ministry of our Lord, 
a section which is very precious to the believer. So many wonderful doctrines of the Christian faith are taught there. And then finally, chapter 18 to the end, the passion ministry of our Christ, of our Lord, who in his trial, his sufferings, his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, reveals to us the central issues of the gospel. So we're in for a great study. We hope you'll join us for each of these sessions together. And in all of this, we pray the prayer that was a request of the Greeks who wanted to see Jesus and came to one of his disciples and said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Let us look to the Lord in a moment of prayer. Our Father in heaven, it is our desire that we would see Jesus, thine only Son, in all of his glory, the glory of his true person. And I pray, Father, that through this many will believe in him. We pray that you will strengthen those who already do. You will cause us to take the glorious gospel of Christ to a world that needs him. We pray for every person in this audience today. God, we pray that you will not, by your Holy Spirit, allow one to escape without the assurance of their relationship to God, that they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is Lord of lords, King of kings, the God who made us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1 of John, please. And as you're looking, you'll notice on the back of your outline notes, that is the general outline, we've given you nine definite signs which John presents in the gospel. You have, for instance, in chapter 2, the changing of water into wine. Chapter 4, the healing of the nobleman's son. Chapter 5, the healing of the impotent man. Chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Chapter 6, walking on the water. Chapter 9, healing the blind man. Chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead. And, of course, chapter 20, the greatest of the signs, the resurrection of Jesus. And then chapter 21, the catching of a great multitude of fish. Now, there are important words in the book also which we've listed for you that tell you something about the nature of the Gospel of John. The word Father, for instance, appears 127 times. And it's in this Gospel that we see the relationship of Jesus to the Father. That's expanded upon, developed, and made very clear for our understanding in this Gospel. The word believe, an important word, used 92 times. The word God used 77 times in this book. The word Lord used 44 times. The word life, often put with the word belief, used 42 times. The word son used 52 times, and that's very important. And the word word used 35 times, often personalizing Jesus Christ. He was the word, the revelation of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, will you open your Bibles now to John chapter 1 and follow along with me as we take the first eight verses of the introduction to the book, which goes through verse 18. But we'll look only at the first eight verses this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness overcame it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. 
I want us to look at two major things in this portion of Scripture, these eight verses of John 1, the first of which is the relationship of Christ to all things, and that's in the first five verses. I don't know of a passage that has caused more contradiction, confusion, doubt, misunderstanding, and argument as the first five verses of John 1. They're very important. They teach and they set the tone for the entire Gospel of John as to what John wants us to believe about Jesus. And so we're going to look at three important things regarding his relationship to all things. First of all, we're going to examine in verse 1 and 2 his person, the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Who is he really? No section thrills my heart anymore in understanding and knowing Jesus as this section. And I hope that I can share it with you in these moments together. There are three things I want you to see about his person in verses 1 and 2. The first relates to his eternity. His eternity. The Bible teaches that he is the eternal Son of God. We read in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. In verse 2, we read the same was in the beginning with God. Now, the definite article, the, in the text is not in the Greek text. It simply says, in beginning, and that's very important because if it was in the beginning, it refers to the act of creation. And some have argued, well, Jesus was created also at that point of time, but that is not what this is saying. Jesus was never created. The Bible teaches that he is God, and we're going to show you why. In beginning refers to beginning, meaning beginning of all things, as it was before anything was made. What existed then? According to the Bible, in beginning was the Word. Now, the little word was, the state of being, is in the imperfect tense, which means continuous. It means that he always has existed. In beginning, whenever that was, before the all things of verse 3, there was Jesus, the Word, the revelation of God. He's always existed. He's the eternal Son of God. I'm amazed at how many people believe that the Messiah is nowhere called eternal. We find in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Bible says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, and the Everlasting Father. People often make the remark to me, very quickly and hoping to snowball you, of course, that the Messiah is never called the Father. Here in Isaiah 9, 6, clearly he's called the Father, literally the Father of the ages. Now, will you turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. If you have a very meager understanding of Jesus, this message will perhaps surprise you today. As you learn who he really is and you understand him, you will maybe be overwhelmed to the point you can hardly believe what you're hearing. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we learn the same thing about the eternal nature of Jesus, that he didn't begin when he was born as a babe in Bethlehem. He's always existed. From beginning of all things, he was there. In Hebrews 1 and 2, it says, God, who at sundry times 
and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. What is God's revelation? What is his speaking to us in the last days? It's in his Son, Jesus Christ. It says, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now the word worlds in verse 2 is simply the word ages. Isaiah 9, 6 says he's the father of the ages. In Hebrews 1, 2, it says he made the ages. You see, he's above time. He's the Alpha and Omega, the entire alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. He had no beginning. He has no end. He is the eternal Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And he is the one who, in, in fact, and according to the Scripture, made time itself. All of the ages are under his providential control, according to the Bible. And that's quite a statement. Now come back to John 1 again. We're looking, first of all, at his person in relation to eternity. He is the eternal Son of God. Now, secondly, dealing with equality. Equality with God the Father. In the second phrase of verse 1, you have this statement, the Word was with God. Literally, it was the Word, the Word was toward the God. I'd like you to write that down. Toward the God. Now, through this passage, before the word God, you will not find the definite article, the, except in one place, and that's in the second phrase here. The word was with or toward, meaning facing the God. That term is always used of equality, facing on the same level, toward the God. Now, for instance, the Jehovah Witness will combine this with the last phrase, to prove that Jesus is not God. I'd like to show you their argument. It's quite strong. The last phrase says, the Word was God, or in the Greek text, God was the Word. Now, the point here is, if you're looking at it in English, the Word was God, they will say to you that it, it does not have the definite article. Therefore, it must mean the Word was a God. And they will use as proof of that the second phrase, the word was toward the God. If he was the God, it would have to have the definite article. That's quite an argument. Now, I will agree with them that in the second phrase, the God does refer to the Father. However, if it is trying to say what they think it is saying in the last phrase, that the word was God, meaning the Father, if he is God, then it would have to say the God was the word, and it doesn't. It doesn't say the God was the Word. It just says God was the Word. Therefore, it's not saying that the Father is the Word. It is talking about Jesus. And it says the Word was God, or God was the Word. Now, the question is, is it a God? Well, unfortunately, one of the basic errors of the Jehovah Witness and of many others who deny the deity of Christ is to assume that because the definite article does not appear before God, that that means it's not making him God, but a God. My friends, this is not a watered-down argument for the deity of Jesus. As a matter of fact, it is the strongest possible way to state his deity. When you take the definite article out of the text, it refers to the essence and substance and being and quality. When you put the definite article into the text, 
it identifies and specifies. So in the second phrase, the word was toward the God, meaning the Father. In the last phrase, God was the word, is a clear, concise statement to the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God, very God, the same God that the Father is. Now, the Bible teaches the Trinity, in spite of some who try to deny it, but perhaps it would be better to say the triunity of God. God is three in one. It is not one plus one plus one, meaning three. It is one times one times one, meaning one. And that's very important. God deals with being and essence and character, substance. There are not three gods. There's only one God, people. There's always only been one God. But he manifests himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You cannot dissect them and divide them. Every human illustration falls in trying to describe it. For instance, I might say there are three people sitting here. They are all human beings. Therefore, they are one in substance. But they are not a good illustration of the Trinity. Why? Because they are localized in human bodies. You cannot do that with God. Now, God saw fit one day to localize himself, a manifestation of his presence in a human body called Jesus of Nazareth. But if you have limited Jesus of Nazareth to that corporeal substance, I've got news for you. Wait till we finish with John 1. You're going to be amazed at who Jesus really is. All three are God. God is only one, but all three manifest themselves the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in wonderful relationships that are very difficult for the finite mind to understand. People say, but wait a minute, if he's called the Son of God, then how in the world could he be God himself? Anybody ever heard that argument? Man, that's been shot at me so many times. If he's the Son of God, then how in the world could he be God? If he's the Son of God? Well, I want you to write it down. The Greek word which means born one, meaning a child that is born, that kind of a son is never used of Jesus of Nazareth in all of the Bible. Did you know that? The common word for a child who's born in a family, a little born one, is never used of Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible no way suggests that he's the son of God in that way. The word son, huios, which is used, the Greeks and the Romans used frequently. And it often meant a child who was not in your family. For an example, if you had a slave who's not related to you, but you loved that slave and you wanted him to be your son, then you adopted him. You placed him as a son to receive the inheritance. And the word meaning a son who's going to get the inheritance was huios, the word that is used here translated son, all the way through the Bible. The son of God means huios, the heir, H-E-I-R, the inheritor of all things. Why? Because he made all things. He owns everything, people. That's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the unique son of God. The only begotten, people say. If he's begotten, then he had to be born. The only begotten is used of Abraham's son in Hebrews 11 and calls him, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. Isaac wasn't the only begotten son of Abraham. He had many other children. The word refers to the uniqueness of Isaac in that the seed of the Messiah would come through him. 
And that same phrase is used of Jesus, the only begotten Son, meaning the unique Son. There's no one like him, no one in the world to be compared with Jesus. Don't let anyone throw at you the Son of as though he's not God, for the Bible does not teach that. He is the heir of all things, and in that relationship, he's the Son to the Father. But both are God. They're not two gods. They're not three gods. There's one God who manifests himself in three persons. And that's a tremendous thing. I intend to ask John and Paul about that when I get to heaven. I want to really understand that. I don't now. I just accept what the scriptures say and teach it. Now, we notice that he is equal with the Father in the second phrase, and that's true. John 10:30. he said, I and the Father are one, not two, not one subordinated to one, but two. You say, but wait a minute, he said the Father is greater than I. He certainly is in terms of his humanity and his purpose on earth. Jesus willingly subordinated himself. In Philippians 2, verse 5 and 6, it speaks about Christ, and it says, who in the form, the very essence of God, did not think it a thing to be grasped at, to be equal with God, meaning he was, but he didn't parade it. But instead, he emptied himself. He divested himself of all of his rights and privileges and became a servant and was found in fashion as a man. And he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. God manifested himself in human flesh, and God willingly restricted himself while in the flesh to maintain a subordinate relationship to the Father. Why? Because he needed it? No, because he taught to us, according to the Bible, our absolute submission to the Father. Not my will, but thine be done. And he was the great example. And through the things which he suffered, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all those who obey him. He is our example. He is equal with the Father. Now back at John 1, the third thing in verse 1 that we want to see, not only his eternal nature, not only the fact that he's equal with God, he's toward the Father, facing the Father on the same level, but third, as to essence. Essence refers to being, substance, what it's made of. And we have the statement we've already referred to at the end of verse 1. God was the Word. What a statement. The eternal God, whatever God there is, friends, that's in the world, is Jesus. God was the Word. Now, often you'll find people saying, nowhere in the Bible is Jesus called God. I hear that so much, and I'm utterly amazed. In Isaiah 9, 6, speaking of the Messiah in the Old Testament, it calls him the mighty God. In the New Testament, in Romans 9, 5, it says that Christ is God-blessed forever, and the construction in the original language is most powerful. In Hebrews 1, 8, the Father is speaking to the Son, quoted from the book of Psalms. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father calls the Son God. And in 1 John 5, 20, that great text, it says of Jesus Christ that this is the only true God. Listen, don't you make any mistake about who Jesus is. Several months ago, in fact, it's been over a year now, I was sharing Jesus Christ with a man. And he, because of problems in his life, saw that Christ could solve his problems and he was hungry to get an answer to his problems. And so he opened his heart, as it were, seemingly so, and prayed and asked Jesus Christ to save him. And he wanted victory over his problems. 
as we were discussing after he had received Christ about who Jesus is, I mentioned, isn't it great to know that he was the eternal God who made us? He said, are you crazy? I said, no. He said, I hear you right. I said, yes, he's God. He said, that can't be. He's not God. I said, well, yes, he is. We got into this big, heavy discussion, and this man could not accept that. And I made a statement unto him. He said, no, my friend, you may have said with the words that you've asked Jesus to come into your heart, but according to the Bible, unless you believe that Jesus is Lord, you are not a Christian. You will never experience the benefits of eternal life. And time proved that out as this man floundered in his sin, in his discouragement, and one day he came down these aisles with his heart broken, and he said, yes, I believe that Jesus is God, and it's the only way. Listen, that's the only one who could save you. No one else can save you. Only God can save you. You may think Jesus is a perfect man, that he never sinned, but a perfect man could only substitute his life for one other, not for the lives of the whole world. Only God could do that. Jesus is God, and you must believe that. You must believe that he's Lord, which declares the sovereignty of God. He's the Jehovah of the Old Testament. His very name means Jehovah saves. In essence, he is God. By the way, in John 5, 27, you have the same phrase that appears in verse 1, God was the Word, this time in reference to his humanity. It says in John 5, 27, if you'd like to look at that, please. It says, speaking of the Father, that he hath given him, meaning Jesus, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. The word the is not in that text. It's simply because Son of Man he is. It's emphasizing his humanity. And therefore, he knows what we are going through. Therefore, he'll be a faithful and merciful high priest and a judge who knows what we have done and what we've experienced. Now, don't fall into the trap of believing that he's not man. Oh, he's all man. He's all man. He was born in the womb of the Virgin Mary, supernatural in his birth, absolutely. But he was born, conceived of the Holy Spirit. But he was a real man. He hungered, he thirsted, he felt what we felt. In fact, in Hebrews 4.15, it says he was tested in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He had no sin nature, and there was no sin in him. He was a perfect man, but he was also God, Almighty God. And that mysterious blend of both God and man in one person was the controversy of the early centuries of the Christian church. It was the one thing that was dividing people. All you must believe that he is God or there is no hope or salvation for you. No other Savior will do. Now, the second thing I want you to see out of John 1, and this in verse 3, refers to his power, his power. First, we looked at his person as to who he is. Now, let's look at his power. What a fantastic statement of power is in verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, there are two very important things stated there about his power that I want you to see. Number one deals with the nature of his creative power. 
It includes all things we are told in the Bible. There isn't anything that has ever come into existence that wasn't the result of the power of Jesus of Nazareth. That's how much power. Listen, people say, can he save me? Why, listen, all things came into existence through the power of Jesus. Don't you think he can save you? Don't you think he can take you in a moment of time and transform you, give you a new life, make you a new creature? Why, this is the God who made us and who made all things. Now, the word made, was made, were made, and also appears in verse 14, is the word to become, to become. So literally, you'd say all things became by him. Now, the word by is the word through, through him, meaning his channel, his agency. Who was the agent of creation? Who actually performed the task? Well, the Son of God. Doesn't the Bible say the Father created? Yes, it does. Does it say the Holy Spirit created? Yes, it does. All three were involved in creation. You see, God is one, one times one times one. There hasn't anything been created. In fact, the text is very strong. Not one single thing ever came into existence that Jesus didn't perform himself. Colossians 1.16 says that through him all things were made. They become. Now, becoming is a matter of creation. Things became. They came into existence. But being is a matter of eternity. Isn't it interesting that when we talk about God, we use the word was, is, eternal, nature. When we talk about creation, it's became. Becoming is a matter of creation. Being is a matter of the eternal nature of God. On one occasion, Jesus said in John 6, before Abraham was, I what? I am. Not I became, I am. Again, being belongs to the nature of God, constant, eternal. Becoming is the act of creation. The second thing I want you to notice from verse 3, first is the nature of his creative power, that all things came through his agency. But this second thing really thrills me, and that's the necessity of his presence. Have you ever looked at this carefully? I read this verse many times and did not see it. It says, without him, apart from him, not one single thing has come into being and is now existing. There's an important change in tense in the Greek language here. In the first phrase, when it says, all things became through him, it's what we call the aorist tense. It means at a moment of time, it's referring to the act of creation. But in the last phrase, when it says that was made, even though it looks the same to you, it is perfect tense, which means it came into existence in the past, but it's referring to as its present continual state. It is continuing to be. Now watch this carefully. According to this text, everything that's ever been created is continuing to exist because of the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. That really thrilled me, because I read in Colossians 1.17 that by him, Jesus, all things consist or they hold together. All the physical laws of the universe, the law of gravity, whatever you want to call, all of them are being sustained by the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know, friend, are you limiting Jesus? I love to look back at the cross and to see the Savior there who died for my sins. Nothing is as precious and as wonderful to the Christian. In all of his suffering, 
but he died there for me and paid for my sins. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. And I love to see him in his resurrection. After his resurrection, I love to see him in his appearances. As he said, I'm, I'm a body. I have flesh and bones. I exist. That's a precious picture of Jesus. I love to watch him as he's ascended into heaven and realize that same Savior who went up in that manner, physically, bodily, is going to come in like manner to receive me forever. And I'm thrilled that he's going to come again. And that's a wonderful picture of Jesus. But listen, that's not all there is to it. God localized himself in that body in a way I don't quite understand, but I believe God became flesh. But listen, Jesus is everywhere. He's the eternal God. He's omnipresent. You can't run away from him. Have you limited Jesus? Isn't it great to know that everything that now exists, you and me, the world, the stars, the universe, everything is being sustained by the eternal presence of Jesus. What a thought. In Hebrews 1, 3, it says he's upholding all things by the word of his power. That's our Savior. That's Jesus. Do you know who he really is? The Bible's telling you here in John 1. Have you come to believe in this Jesus? I feel like saying many times, will the real Jesus stand up? You hear so many people talking about Jesus. Well, John's giving us the real Jesus right here. He's the eternal God who had all power, who made all things, and apart from his wonderful, eternal, omnipresent presence, nothing could exist or even sustain itself. All the worlds would collide if Jesus stopped sustaining them by his own power. It's fantastic when you realize what's being said. The third thing I'd like you to notice is his purpose in verse 4 and 5, dealing with his relationship to all things. What was his purpose? This great eternal God who became man. We have these words, verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness overcame it not. What a text. Two things here. Number one, the Bible's telling us that he is the giver of all life and light. Now, light is what men need to know about God. It's revelation. Light, understanding, knowledge, revelation. And all of that light is in the life that Jesus is and has. Do you know there isn't any life, whether it's physical, spiritual, eternal, plant life, vegetable life, animal life? All life exists because in him, Jesus, is life. Every kind of life is in him. There isn't any life in the world that has ever come into being that isn't because of the life of Jesus. What a wonderful statement in John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but through me. He's the life, all the life there is. And he's all the light and the knowledge that men need to know. He said, I am the truth, not a part of the truth, half of the truth, not the truth about religion. He is all the truth there is, is in the person of Jesus. He's the giver of life and light, and there couldn't be anything more wonderful that is said. Now, the next statement in verse 5 teaches us that his purpose is the redemption of men. Maybe you've never looked at that verse carefully and have seen what it is actually saying. It says, verse 5, the light 
is shining in darkness. And the next statement says, not just darkness, but and the darkness, the particular one, did not overcome it. It never was able to overcome the light. What is that talking about? Friends, that's talking about the fall of man and the entrance of sin into the world. Light is now shining in darkness, sin everywhere. But the light is shining. You can never get rid of the light. Fantastic. Men can never squelch the knowledge of the presence of God. In Romans 1:20, it says that the invisible things of God are clearly seen by the things that are made, even as eternal power in Godhead, so that men are without excuse. We can look at the universes and know that a God had to make that. You cannot squelch, you cannot diminish the knowledge of God, no matter how great is the darkness. Isn't that thrilling? Listen, things may get bad in this old world, and sin may be running rampant, and people going to the dogs, as it were, but listen, you can never get rid of the knowledge of God. And one day the Bible says that knowledge of God will be known throughout the whole world. The Bible teaches that you cannot run away from the knowledge of God. You are without excuse. But the Bible says that the darkness, that moment, that one moment when sin entered the world, Eve deceived by Satan, Adam deliberately disobeying, in that one moment, it's encouraging to me to know that that darkness, that sin that entered the world can never overcome the light. Let me put this together for you. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 5, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. It says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he's in the light. If we're in that light also, then we share in common his life. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, which is the darkness. If we say we have no sin, the Bible says we're walking in the darkness. God is light. In him is no darkness, no sin. Now, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, it says that God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says that God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the gospel is in us now, the same light that burst into existence when God commanded it in the beginning. Light is in our lives, and it's the light of Christ. Christ said, I am the light of the world. Well, the darkness, no matter whether it's one sin or a thousand, friends, the darkness can never overpower and conquer the light. Isn't that encouraging? Listen, the light dispels the darkness. I don't care what sin is in your life right now. Jesus is the light, and he can dispel the darkness. The same God who in one moment spoke light into existence, in one moment can dispel the darkness in your life. The light of Jesus in your life can overpower the darkness, no matter how great that darkness is. And then I'd like you to notice verse 6, 7, and 8, the record of John about the word. And I find this very important to me as a believer, and I hope you will see it also. There isn't a believer who isn't impressed, 
challenged and inspired by the testimony of John the Baptist. There couldn't be a better example in all the Bible for believers today to see our responsibility to the light, to the person of Christ, as John the Baptist. Think for a moment down at the River Jordan, not in the great temple in Jerusalem, but down at the River Jordan is a wild man. He wears camel's hair and he has a leather belt about him and he's eating locusts and wild honey and he's down there telling the world that they're going to perish unless they repent. And John said he was a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Even when the angel proclaimed his birth to his father in Luke 1, it said that he will turn away the hearts of many to the Lord. That was his mission in life. Well, look at just three things about John and apply them to your own life as a believer. Number one, his authority. The Bible says in verse 6, there was a man sent, having been sent from God, whose name was John. Listen, we're not going out in our own power and authority. God wants Christians to witness all over the world. But we're going out under the authority of God, of Christ. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Why can we go? Why can we preach? Because it's in the authority of God, not in our own authority. Secondly, I want you to notice his ambition in verse 7. What's your ambition, Christian? Are you scoring points with God? Are you trying to satisfy a guilty conscience by witnessing? What is your real ambition? Three things characterize the ambition of this man, and they become a constant testimony to your life and mine. The first thing I notice is that he was under a divine commission to be a witness. The Bible says the same came for a witness to bear witness. A witness tells what he knows and what he's experienced. The word martyr comes from this Greek word. It may cost you your life but he's giving a declaration, a witness to what he knows and experiences. You know, nothing could be more sweeter from your life in terms of what God wants you to do than to tell what you know and what you have experienced about Jesus Christ. And every Christian in that sense is trained by God to be a witness to the world because you're simply telling what you've experienced and what you know. The second thing that strikes me about his ambition was the character of it. It says he's to bear witness of the light. Part of the problem in Christian witness is we're bearing witness to ourselves or to the church or to a denomination. Instead of the light, it is Jesus. Now listen, God may have done some wonderful things in your life, and I praise the Lord for it, but do not let people draw attention to those things. Somebody will come to you and say, my, it's tremendous to see the change in your life. At that moment, what you do is very important. Give witness to the light, Jesus, not to yourself. They may observe that you now have a peace in the midst of trial that you never had. Give witness to the light, not yourself. We're not going about declaring ourselves. Paul says we preach not ourselves, but ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It's the light, Jesus, that we want to glorify. And I challenge every believer here, let's reevaluate, let's rethink, let's go over again the witness that we are bearing as Christians. Is it to the light Jesus? Is it to the person, the glorious person of Christ that's revealed here in John 1? Or are we just out trying to score points? Just out trying to, quote, win souls? 
Oh, I believe we're in the business of winning souls, all right. But this is for God and for His glory because they're going to be with Him forever and ever. Then I notice, third, the concern that's involved in all of this and the ambition that's really correct. In verse 7, it says that all men through Him might believe. No other concern, no other compassion, no other reason but that all men, no matter who they are, where they come from, what their backgrounds, that all men may somehow believe. That's the tenor, that's the heart of the book of John. As he ends this book again, as we read earlier, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that in believing you may have life through his name. And then finally, notice his attitude in verse 8. I'm always impressed, and I know you are too, if you know much about John the Baptist, of his precious attitude. The Bible says he was, literally that one was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. He wasn't the light, and he never wanted to be known as it. He said, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. They came to John and said, are you the one that we're looking for? No, I'm not the one. Are you Elijah? No. Are you Jeremiah? No. Who are you? I'm a voice. Pious humility? Oh, no. In John 3.30, he said, He must increase and I must decrease. It was a man that was totally devoted to God to the point he did not see himself as, in the role as the great saver of men. No, he saw himself in the role as a communicator for the one who could save men. Jesus saves men, and he can save you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for reading this portion of Scripture, studying it together, and of again reminding ourselves who Jesus really is, the God who made us. We thank you that all things were made by him, and apart from his divine presence, this world would collapse. He's sustaining the universe by his own power. We thank you that he who was God had all life in him and all life that we now have and enjoy is because of him. That life and presence of God is all the light and all the knowledge that men need. All the truth is in him. And we thank you that the darkness ever since it began in the garden till now, no matter how great the darkness, it can never overcome the light. We praise you that Jesus can dispel the darkness in any man's life. And Father, we thank you that in any moment of time, when we come in simple faith and believe what the Bible really says about Jesus and agree that he is Lord, you've told us that we'll be saved. And God, I thank you that by your Holy Spirit you can save people right now. There are some people that really want to know, that really want to be saved, really want to know if they die now, they'd be in heaven. And God, I thank you in one moment of time, the moment we agree and accept and acknowledge and receive Jesus as our Lord and Master, in that moment we can be saved. And I pray right now by your Holy Spirit that you draw people unto yourself and save them. We thank you too, Lord, that we who are your sons and daughters by faith 
now in the family of God, not because we ever deserved it or earned it, but only because Jesus paid for our sin, rose again that we might be pronounced righteous. And as living, constantly interceding for us and one day going to return, we pray that we who know you as Savior, God, teach us to be the witness we should be of the light. I pray for believers here in our midst. Many of us have been playing around at witnessing, some of us for wrong motivations, wrong ambitions. God, I pray in this one moment we would declare our allegiance to the light, that we might draw all men to the Savior. We might have them cast their eyes upon him and learn whom he really is. We might tell them the truth about Christ, that all men might believe. We pray that you'll straighten us out in our witness, that we might commit ourselves to be faithful as God has asked us. And we thank you for this in the precious name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.